And a warm welcome back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. Myself, your host, Dan Palmer, sitting on a hill here, two days away from summer solstice in the New Zealand summer. I might pause a moment and let's take in the, the sounds around together, the lambs bleating, cicadas buzzing, breeze rustling in the trees above. if you can hear it um, I'm also hearing my wife scraping out the last of the lime preserve she's just made from a very abundant harvest that a neighbour made and dropped off to us a few days back today I'm bringing you a lovely conversation with a very experienced USA based permaculture designer Penny Livingston Stark that I've been looking forward to getting on the show for probably a year now you can find out more about Penny's wonderful work at pennylivingston.com and I really enjoy this kind of swapping of notes with folk that have been uh, permaculture designers and teachers for decades. Now this episode is a celebration of the fact that and if you've got a pulse you will be well aware that this podcast has a new soundtrack. Oh my god it's been such a long time coming and I'm so grateful to Pip Heath the partner of Beck Rafferty, who's a member of the Making Permaculture Stronger community. Um, Pip has a busy life, and in his spare time, one of his hobbies is music making. And he reached out when I put out a request a couple of episodes back and said, hey, can I help you out with 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 the, with the new track? So we went through a process together, and I'm so happy that Pip has generated this um, this lovely musical lead-in and accompaniment and closing um, what's called outro etc thanks again Pip you're a legend and Pip said that if you have a podcast he's got energy for this kind of project so if you'd like some help with the new intro outro etc contact me through makingpermacultrastronger.net and if appropriate I'll connect you up with Pip and you can get busy now I also want to let you know about a couple of online courses I'm offering in the new year One of them is on the topic of holistic decision making, which is a practical approach to organizing your life around what matters most to you, something I draw on every day and on all of my work with clients and organizations and landscape development projects and so on. The next one starts on January 16th, so that's about a month away. You can learn more about that at holisticdecisionmaking.org. And the second course isn't going to be till April next year, and this is going to be the first offering in this format on living design process where I'm putting together a course that over eight weeks will invite people into a journey where they're not only learning about living design process as, as a theory, as an approach and a way of seeing and being and, and looking at creation projects, they'll simultaneously be supported to live into living design process with regard to an actual real project in their lives. And you can learn more about that one at livingdesignprocess.org. I also want to float a topic that I'll be diving into in an upcoming post and episode. It's taken me a while to get here. The terrain's been changing so fast and it's such a sense-making um, mess out there with all these pitch battles and polarization divisiveness and all that scary, scary, scary stuff. However, it's, it's getting to the point where I'm really compelled to look at what's happening internationally 
nationally, regionally and locally currently in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic and policy strategy and so on around it and, and, and digging beneath that, what if anything this means for the default worldview and paradigm of our society? I've become quite concerned that if we're not tuning into this, then the baseline from which I personally are trying to open conversations about more living processes may be invisibly plummeting, where it would be a tragic mistake not to go there and shine the light of awareness and invite myself and yourselves into a into dialogue around what do all these amazing frameworks and worldviews and perspectives, what if anything do they help us see and what if how if in any way do they guide our personal decision making and design and creation processes on a daily basis um, in the current scenario I don't, I don't want there to be any disconnect between the, the work I'm passionate about and the reality of what's unfolding in our lives day to day um, and so we're going to be diving in there exploring that I'm inviting you in the meantime to get in touch and share any insights and perspectives you have on this it's quite a difficult thing to write about so it'd be amazing if I could simply copy and paste with with acknowledgement of course <laughs> and of your stuff meanwhile let's jump into the chat with Penny and I will catch you next year thanks for coming on the show you're welcome I wanted to share with you that many years ago like five years ago or something I listened to you in conversation with Scott Mann on the Permaculture Podcast. Uh-huh. And I appreciate I really appreciated the the energy you brought and the way you talked about your experience. And there was one thing that really stuck with me, which was you were talking about how you 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 honor the it was something like you honor the designer's manual and the curriculum and stuff and you and you don't explicitly steer into I don't know what word you use, but like into more spiritual realms, something like that. But then then you made this comment that and if in the process of harmonizing with Gaia or of, of relaxing back into life, you don't feel something. <laughs> Maybe you're a piece of cardboard or something along those lines. <laughs> I love, I love yeah. it. Ever since then, I thought I'd love to follow up and, and talk. So here you are. Yeah, well, there's, you know, different uh, schools of permaculture teaching. Hmm. And, and, and my interest is not alienating anybody, you know, everybody's welcome and everybody has their spiritual beliefs. So I don't push my spiritual beliefs on others regardless you know so i kind of stay steer clear of that but there are other people that are very strongly there will be no metaphysics in permaculture and you know not to mention any names and and i think bill he he's one of my teachers and he was like my uncle i mean i was very close with him and he he was always worried about permaculture taking you know going woo woo or going off into new age land or something so he was pretty he was one of those that just wanted to keep it on the practical level. And I tend to do that as a, as a student, as he's my mentor. But, you know, when you're out there doing the work, actually engaging with the garden or restoration, earth repair, she's speaking to us, you know, and, and I've talked to Native Americans. I've been invited into a lot of their communities to teach permaculture. And, and they kind of say the same thing. It actually brings people into this connection on a metaphysical level. Uh, I just, you can't help it. I mean, it's just part of being connected to the natural world. And to not acknowledge that, you know, is kind of silly, but, you know, I just like people to have their own experiences 
in general, you know, so I don't preach any of that, but, but it is what happened to me. And I, I see it happening pretty much to everybody who yeah. actually engages, gets out of the theory and into the practice of working with Pachamama. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you're up for, you've probably been asked to do this a lot, giving a really concise sort of introducing yourself to my audience. Some of them will have heard of you. Some of them might not have. And then just to give you a heads up, my, my big passion with regard to permaculture is design process. And I'd love to explore that with you and hear about your adventures with design process over the years and where you're at with it. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I took my first permaculture course in Oregon in 1990. And then I think in 93, I took a course with Bill Mollison down in Texas. Mm -hmm. And I also took a uh, teacher training course with Lee Harrison and Max Lindiger, who were a couple of Bill's first students. I'm kind of medium school, you know, there's old school, a new school. I'm kind of like, <laughs> mean, like I'm, I'm what the, yeah, the, the catch would call a chakaruna, like a bridge person. And uh, I, well, on a personal level, <laughs> I uh, ended up having a lot of dreams after I took my permaculture course. I just kept having these dreams and I did design them. My background is in landscape design and construction. So I had a design build firm. So I, by day, I was doing a lot of design work, talk about design process. Mm. And then at night, in the dreams, I'd always be next to this like invisible person and we'd be looking at land and kind of discussing what the land needed or something like that. And, and, and that actually, that design process of using that part of your brain is really exhausting, actually. When you're doing a lot of mapping and, you know, analytical work for long periods of time, you know, you got, like I remember doing that, you know, with a friend, we could barely navigate our way out of a parking lot afterwards, you know, it just gets exhausting. And so I just, I was, I was exhausted. And finally I got the message, you know, to kind of commit my life to doing this work with permaculture. And I'm like, okay, okay. Can I get some sleep? And, and then the dreams went away and I got some sleep. <laughs> Interestingly, later on when I was doing, um, I was at a place and it just started pouring out of me, like what the land needed. I, I could just see it like almost like a transmission. And so Something that's pretty metaphysical. I mean, get right down to it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And and that's kind of a little bit of my story. And then, because I guess I answered the call, I I never had a book, wrote a book or had a website or anything, but I ended up getting invited all over the world to teach and work on projects and such. And and it's just been it's been kind of a whirlwind. It's kind of taken me by them, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm holding on, you know, for dear life and it's like dragging me all around the world to do this work. So, so I get, there's some kind of fate maybe involved. I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, I've been blessed to uh, be able to work with intercultural communities with very diverse cultures, like all in one room together mm-hmm. and talk about and share what's really important around earth repair resiliency permaculture you know so i've learned i think way more than i teach yeah, <laughs> actually yeah 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 that resonates i've, I've done initially with rosemary morrow done some work in africa that was oh that you was, went with her there yes yeah we ran a few pdcs in ethiopia and then started a project in uganda and particularly in ethiopia was that overwhelming sense at the end when they <laughs> participants took us for a cruise around the countryside and we saw these multi multi-thousand year old hyper you know brilliant water harvesting stone built terraces maintained over generations you know 
and they hadn't mentioned any of that when we were trying to get across the basics of water design so we, i felt like a bit of an idiot after that and learned mm -hmm. so much mm. wow um wow. that's really that's really cool maybe we'll come back to that i'd, I'd love to hear some of the things the commonalities and what you've learned from different cultures and so on um but before that it'd be great to hear how you think about design process where it sits within permaculture where it relates and and then how you approach it how you teach it how you practice anything that's shifted for you over the years that kind of thing yeah it's kind of it's a it's sort of a both and process for me because yeah. there's different overlays i mean there's the land and then depending on the scale of the land, like a larger landscape is a bigger, different process than like a postage stamp, you know, suburban yard. And then there's the client or the steward of the land. And um, so, of course, it's involving a lot of observation. So if I'm working, like, say, if it's a postage stamp yard, I'm really observing the client almost more than anything else. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's involving a lot of observation and listening I've always, especially on larger landscapes, I'm always kind of asking, what do you want? What wants to happen here? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about the metaphysical aspects, you know, the permaculture process, design process really brought me into my intuition. Like I, I started trusting, I learned to trust my intuition more as a permaculturist, interestingly enough. And sometimes I, in the beginning of this, I was questioning, is it intuition or is it pattern understanding or pattern recognition? Because you know how they say, you know, your brain absorbs so much information. So on such an unconscious level, like, like, you know, I don't know, millions of data going in all at once and we, that we're not really aware of consciously. And I wonder sometimes, is it, is it pattern recognition that I'm seeing or is it intuition? So that's a question that I've that I've sat with for a while, um, but then once we get past the kind of observing and seeing what's there, I often also take soil and I hold it in my hand while I'm walking. Um, I do a lot of consultation work, so people, I just share what I'm observing and and I have this in my hand. For some reason, I get I get things from that. Mm. But then when it, once you get sort of a sense of things, I I always pretty much start with water. That's where I go yeah. is I start with water, like where's, where's the source of water, what, what's happening on the land with water, and then soil, you know, and, and it's almost goes hand in hand. That's where it's kind of both and because the soil tells a lot about the water and the water tells a lot about the soil. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I almost, you can't separate the two and, you know, just the slope and, you know, just looking at water. And once I've determined that, then, and then, then overlaying the client because the water is your limiting factor in many ways. And gravity is a thing. And, um, a, I like that. Gravity is a it. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We like, we like working with it. We want it to be our ally, not our enemy. And so working with gravity, working with water. And then once that's established, that's going to kind of frame what you can do if it's, if you're going to be sustainable. And then, um, then at that point, I kind of overlay the client's needs and wants into that um, and, and their capacity. Like they get all excited, you know, yeah, I want this and that. And da, 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 da. This huge thing is like, yeah, but are you going to be able to handle this? Are you biting off more than you can chew? And um, so trying to find strategies for the maintenance. So 
that's one thing. And then, and then of course, looking at climate and, um, and vegetation, like in observing vegetation, it tells me a lot about what, what wants to happen. And, and it's easier when the land has not been manipulated. If the land has been really manipulated and bulldozed and shifted in a big way, it's harder to tell. But you can always say, you know, if you see an aloe vera growing next to, you know, a house, you know, oh, there's a little microclimate if you're in a temperate zone that can handle, that doesn't get frost or, you know, things like that. And uh, sometimes it also tells like habitat and um, the, the wild critters. That's always something to, to think about. And then just getting the bigger picture from the client in terms of what's their, you know, short-term and long-term plan in relationship to, to that place or in their lives. So sometimes yeah. I've been a, I felt like I've been a permatherapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was curious. That's something I've figured out my own approach to is the work with the clients, reading the clients and diving into their hopes and dreams and desires and intentions. And is that kind of parallel in the sense that you bring your intuition? Oh, but by the way, a friend of mine, he, he breaks it into inner tuition. I thought you might like that. Inner tuition? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, I like words because we don't have words. There's, yeah, we have yeah. Limited language in many ways. Yeah. 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 So, so what, what was your question? Oh, so I was curious what, what you could share about the process you use in specifically when you're, when you're working with the clients to find out what they're all about and what their capacity is and what they care about. Well, I'm not sure if I quite understand the question, but I listen to what they say. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing, you know, I listen to what they say. And then it's also just <clears throat> in my own experience, and, you know, what's their job? Do they have a full-time nine-to-five job somewhere? Do they work at home? Do they have kids? I mean, do they have animals? Like, what's their, what's their story in their life? But um, just from my own experience, I tend to not want people to bite off more than they can chew. And I try to limit things and phase things. That would be one approach. Like, they want a full-out, full-on thing. It's like, well, let's build over time so that you can be successful and get certain things established first and then add, you know, over time. So you're not overwhelmed yep. because we want it to be fun. I mean, I, I, I've done that myself. I've, I've overwhelmed. I mean, my first yard, it was, it was not a postage stamp, but it was like an acre, which was, is that a half a hectare or something? And um, I went and planted all these fruit trees everywhere. <laughs> and I was like saucing and chutneying and, juicing and pressing and freezing and canning like you name it every way like it was just too much yeah just the abundance was too much and so we ended up starting a farmer's market and that helped but yeah you know you have to be size things for capacity so that's probably the main thing I look for in clients besides their needs and wants and what their vision is is what's their capacity and, and try to get clear. Like one, one couple was like that. They had this, they had like five acres and they wanted to put in all this stuff. And, but, and they had two houses on the property. And I said, well, have you thought about maybe getting a, a land steward that could live in one of the houses? I mean, they were very academic, you know, PhD, you know, people. And at first I said, no, oh no. And then they called me back later and said, you know, that's a good idea. <laughs> You know, to have somebody that's there in exchange for rent to maintain the place. Mm. And that's what they did. And it's, and it's working. Mm, yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah. Beautiful. I wanted to share, this has been a big passion of mine for a while and I'm appreciating how naturally you're speaking about your process and it feels really genuine. 
and I've, one phenomenon I've noticed in permaculture and in myself and also with others is that initially what we say we do is more, it's more outer tuition. It's more guided by what we learn, what the book said. And then what we, what we actually do, for me anyway, if I was honest, they, they stopped perfectly lining up. And so it's been a process to learn to actually sort of bring the process into the foreground and be able to say what, what works rather than saying, oh, no, what I did was, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. And it's, I'm feeling that coming through and you're really appreciating that, and including like the holding the, the soil and, and, and the intuitive slash pattern recognition and that question, that in a way master question, what wants to happen here? What wants to happen here? And, I, and I'm already getting more of a like supporting that to reveal itself feel than imposing my clever design ideas on the situation. Yeah. Yeah, people have, they get these things in different ways, you know, like things just, I'm, I've learned like when things pop into my head, the first, I, I learned to trust that. Like I'll li- I will listen to that. I might not run with it, but I'll definitely look at it, you know, and, and consider it because that's telling me some, something, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and the other thing too, that we didn't mention is just working in a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also worked in interdisciplinary design teams. And that's interesting, especially as a permaculturist, because we do everything so different. Mm-hmm. But there's been, you know, some architects I've worked with are really, really highly skilled in running an interdisciplinary design team, and they're really good at it. And one of the things that they do is they have a system of keeping everybody in the loop. And then I've worked with others. In one case, I'm thinking of a developer who was the hub, who was the decision maker, and wasn't keeping everybody in the loop and wasn't actually listening to anybody and doing his own thing. He was like, I call it, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you kind of <laughs> approach. And his project ended up failing. But part of it was like, we designed, I designed these ponds that went in and I'm, the bulldozer operated. One of them was an aquaculture pond and the bulldozer operator is installing the pond and there's some water in the bottom and he's throwing his aluminum cans in the pond. I'm like, no, not in the aquaculture pond. No, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not in any pond, actually. But, you know, he was just not on the program. Like he's, you know, just completely poo around what we were trying to do because he wasn't kept in the loop. You know, he wasn't informed like this is the there's a there's a there's a value system attached to this project around getting rid of toxicity, for example, and clean food. (laughs) Fully, yeah, that resonates. I've seen it all. I think yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that thing with developers where the, the engineer and the architect and the so on. So they're all just these just fragmented things blowing in the wind. And it's pretty hard. Right. To- and that's where permaculture actually came from. You know that, yeah. right? Like David Holmgren asking the question, why aren't all these design disciplines, including biology and ecology, why aren't they just all talking to each other? Yeah. 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 yeah that intersection between ecology agriculture and oh, yeah. landscape design yeah yeah I'm really, I'm really i've been inquiring into that the the question around what was actually i don't know if you'd be up for, for sharing what your take on it so i've been sitting with this question of what is what was permaculture's radical originating impulse you know like the seed of the permaculture concept because to me regeneration is about going back and like really honoring that what comes up for you well just knowing bill i mean he he was he was enraged at humanity's stupidity towards nature and the objectifying of nature and how we're rolling over everything and trashing everything and poisoning everything. Like how can we supply for our needs without having to trash the earth? That's, that's where, you know, he 
his fire was lit. Yeah. And yeah. I would say that resonates for me too. Like maybe that's where you get along really well. I think it was one of the few Americans that he actually really liked. But um, yeah, I, you know, I felt that, you know, I was enraged and, yeah. and just the ridiculousness of how people do things. And when I had my landscape business, you know, I was probably one of the only people, there, I'm sure there might've been others, but one of the few who did you never use chemicals. I never used pesticides or, or quick chemical fertilizers. Everything was organic. And, um, you know, at that time I was working a lot with native plants, mm-hmm. but then I kind of moved into food plants and stuff, but yeah, I mean, just people just poison everything all the time and it's so unnecessary and it's more expensive and it actually doesn't even take any more time, less time, you know, it, it, and in the long run probably takes more time. When you're spending yeah. in the hospital dealing with all the chemicals you've been exposed yeah, to. Yeah, totally. I had a flashback of, I did my first PDC with Bill Mollison in 2005. Bill, Bill oh. There was one of his classic comments during the PDC. So something like, people ask me why I do this stuff. They think I must have a lot of love, you know, love for, so it's not love. I do it because I'm angry, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yep. He's enraged. Exactly. Yeah, enraged. Exactly is, is, is what you said. Yeah, and that, that was that was cool to hear you say that. So that yeah, what, what would it mean for humans to provide for their own needs without trashing the earth? And then, then of course, moving to not only not trashing it, but the possibility of maintaining it or even healing it. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, what I love about permaculture is it's not just being in the less bad category. Exactly. It's actually in the regenerative. How can we be a beneficial? Uh, presence on the earth and we can and in many cases we are I mean there's I mean I'm not there's a difference between organic farming and permaculture but even a good organic farmer is building soil while they're growing their food they still are doing a lot of monoculture and stuff but some of these multi-cropping farms and especially now well I, I I live in Washington state now but I was living in California and there's an amazing um organic farming community there that have adopted a lot of permaculture practices in their farming methods and moving more towards regenerative farming mm-hmm. um, as opposed to just organic. Uh, and that includes a lot of perennials and it, it includes way more of the permaculture approach to planting a lot of support species in addition to, to your crops, you know, not just the crop, yeah. you know, yeah. example. Yeah. 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 I think that's so important that, moving from the business as usual paradigm to the arrest disorder or less bad paradigm. Carol Sanford, I don't know if you know Carol Sanford, she has two on top of that. So there's, there's the do good, which is here's some, here's some good things we should do, which can end up being in a position and then regenerate, which is like, which is coming back to what, what wants to happen here. What's, what's the uniqueness of these people in this place and how can we steward that unfolding process? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to, what do I want? Oh yeah. I, I was curious. Part of my work's been, critically looking into the concept of the design, which when I started, that was my deliverable. So people would pay me as a permaculture expert to come and mm-hmm. talk to them, look at the place and then give them this thing, you know, this the the map. Is a noun. Yeah, and, and they they thought they were buying the map from me and I thought I was selling the map to them. And that's what was happening. But after a while, I realized there was some fundamental issues with that. Like it, you go back after time and they, they never understood the map. They didn't get around to implementing it, all, the, all these issues. So I've, oh, I've totally right. moved my story about what I'm doing. And I was curious, how that how you relate to that well that's what i i had a design build i had the design build so i put it in too and what's nice about that is that if if you if you get a better idea on the fly 
if you're working with an architect and a landscape architect and a contractor and all these different people and the contractor gets a better idea, he's seriously liable if he goes in because he doesn't have all the information. You know, he can't one one contractor like here's an, an example was there was a straw bale house going in in Northern California and the contractor gets there and sees that it's actually located on top of a wet spot you know, on the land and he moves it without saying anything, David, he ended up moving it off the property line. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Type one error, you know, and, but when, if, when you're the designer, you have the, you have all the information and if you're putting it in, then when you make a decision to make a change, you've got, it's a sound decision because you, you've got everything you need to do it. So, so it, it's just a way I, the other speaking about design projects, the other thing, I don't know if I coined this term or I don't know where I got it. Maybe you've heard of it, but I call it iterative design, meaning like, instead of like do it once and do it right. Like, yeah. you know, putting yeah. in a swale yeah. and maybe the swale's too small. Maybe the swale blows out, but you know, that happened actually, Bill put a swale in, I was working with him in California and put a swale in and the swale, there was a big rain and swale blew out. And I said, Bill, the swale blew out. And he's like, so what'd you do? Well, got a shovel. It took me 10 minutes to fix it. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? Oh, but, but sometimes yeah. if you do it, like we're an engineer, we're like, want to overbuild it and put all this concrete and make it mm. permanent and huge. And, you know, and, and for what, you know, it's this huge amount of wasted resource and, you know, if it, it, you know, why are you concreting, you know, they do a lot of drainage systems that way here, you know, where they're, yeah. they're removing the whole capacity for infiltration. And then they wonder why all the valleys down below are getting flooded because there's all this runoff, you know, rushing down mm -hmm. there and all the people down below are sandbagging during these big storms. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so like taking it kind of step-by-step step and observing and, 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 you know, in the, in, in the process is designing for flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I also really design for access, you know, to make sure like, like one example is irrigation systems. I install a lot of irrigation systems. The old school, like they put them in a hole in the ground and, you, and I'm the one that has to, would have to go repair them. I, I just call it knuckle busters. You're getting in there and then you can't get wrenches. And there's mm -hmm. it's a pain where I put them in a certain way where you have a box over it. You can take the box off. Everything's accessible. Same with harvesting fruit. You know, if you, you want to, you know, if it's on a bigger scale, making sure you have access to be able to get a truck nearby. So you're not having to schlep everything. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. That, that that thing, kind of I can feel that thing of it's like playing the movie, right? Like in, imaging all the possibilities. Okay, I'm I'm seeing this little tree now. It's ten years old. There's more fruit. Where's the truck truck backing in? Now I'm fixing the irrigation. Like it's almost like the <laughs> playing playing the movie of what's wanting to happen here and how it's going to unfold. It tells you what needs to you know what you need to allow for. Something well, exactly. Like yeah, you brought up that actually. What I'm hearing and what you're saying is planning for the future. You know, thinking about the next person who's going to come along that's going to have to deal with, like, say, my irrigation system. You know, I want them to be able to come in and, and there's a valve that needs to be replaced. They can replace it. Like, yeah. it's not everything like, like so glued together you can't, yeah. you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Or, or the tree when it's, you know, finally producing 500 pounds of fruit totally. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. fully. What, one thing I'm, I really want to bring into the foreground, which is coming through so clearly and I think is so important 
is that when you when you're talking about iterative design and you're also talking about design build, like you, what I'm getting is 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 dissolving because in, in our culture and in, in, in a lot of other design disciplines, architecture, engineering, etc., there's a very rigid split between the designer and the builder, between the thinker and the doer, and and what I'm hearing you say, and this has been a huge discovery for me, is that those things need they need to be one and the same. You know, they need to be it's fully together. Way beneficial, and it saves the client a ton of money because when you're doing the way you're speaking about, like an architect, when he hands off those plans to the contractor, every little detail has to be on those plans. Yeah, built. You know, all the construction, every little thing. Because, you know, yeah, so the contractor knows exactly what to do and they do it exactly the way it's on the plan. And if they're not in the United States anyway, they're liable. If anything fails it's the, and the contractors are following the plan of the architect, then then they're the ones that are liable. And who wants to, they're not going to take that on. Totally. It's not worth it. So if, yeah, so when uh, I would, since I was a design build, all I would really have to do mostly was um, a conceptual plan. Sometimes I would do an, I would do a, uh, a planting plan if it was more depending on the project or if it had to be approved by the county or the city, so you'd have to do, you know, detailed planting plan, but I would never do like irrigation plans, yeah. you know, or anything. I just put them in. And so, so instead of paying somebody to just draw everything out, which is tedious and has to be very precise, um, you can even just ha have enough information to, to convey to the client so they know what it is you're going to do yeah. and then do it. And they, totally, they're, yeah. so they're spending more of their money in the implementation than in Fully. the actual drawing yeah, yeah. No, and, I love and drafting. That. And I love CAD. Oh, my God. <laughs> I used to draw everything by hand. And it was, oh, you, and you wanted to move something or change something and be like, nah, <laughs> yeah. I can't do that. It's yeah, too much yeah. work. Yeah, I, I love that. And the feeling the trust there too, right? Because part of what you're doing with the client is establishing that trust. So they trust you enough to say, okay, you've given us a broad direction and we trust that you can simply go ahead and build the irrigation system without us needing to sign off on a, right. on a, detailed, um, a detailed plan. I, I have a distinction. I'm working on a book about it at the moment between what I call fabricating, which is traditional master plan blueprint first. Um, yeah. And then at the other end of it, no plan at all. Like, just sort of feel where to start and start to do it, which can go bad. Or I, I find in, if it's done properly, like deeply enough, it can be amazing. But then in between the hybrid, where you start with a concept plan and that's enough to guide you. And then the details emerge in the process, um, you know, in the process itself as, as, as you go along. I'll be curious to, to one thing I've, I've realized in my work where it's gotten to is I've reversed the relationship between map and territory. So often we design on a map and then we impose what's on the map onto the territory. Right, whereas, the map's not territory. Is that what you're referring well, to? Well, yeah, I mean, the map's not the territory. It, they're two things, right? And they're both involved. Right. They both have their place. But we tend to start with the map and then move from map to territory. So the information is flowing from our mind onto the map, onto the ground. Whereas okay. what I'm interested in is, is my mind and my heart and my soul, my whole system getting in a dance with the ground, kind of like when you're doing an irrigation system. And I'm doing that now with the whole thing, with driveways and dams and buildings and the whole lot. Like, like working on the site... And then afterwards, I put a drone up, take a photo, print it, print it out, and give that to the client and say, "Here's your design." But the way the way it got on the piece of paper is is from the process of actually working on the ground, and then like an as-built type of thing, going back to the map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I say you'll get you'll get your design in two years once we've developed the property, <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I get that. I mean, that the ch- I mean, to me, map a map is a tool, and there's mm. two things that a map does for me. One is uh, in the pro in the design process, you can see connections from a bird's eye view. I think, you know, just getting that different perspective is really helpful, particularly in seeing flows and Mm. connections um, between the elements on a on a site or in a plan. But the other thing is, is just to communicate your idea to the client or the whoever's paying you so that you are in simpatico with the person or whoever that they you're all no it doesn't have to be exact but at least conceptually what you're doing often i would just show photos and show pictures of gardens and say this is what it will look like it'll have this feel to it um but it won't be exactly that or something and that can save time but but one of the things uh, you know after doing this for so many years i had one of my aha moments was you know the only real cutting edge permaculture projects are going to be are going to be mine I'm going to be the ones I do for myself because people kept, you know, and this was old. It's, I may think maybe it's different now because being a kind of a pioneer, you know, introducing these ideas at the beginning, they would weed out the solar, they would weed out the food forest or they, you know, they just want the grapes or they just, you know, um, they would, yeah, they just didn't quite, they weren't always quite on the same page to really go for it, like to really create. And so I ended up uh, for like 17 years, I restored a 17 acre farm that was completely overgrown. You couldn't walk through it at all. And uh, we restored it. And now it's, uh, we had, it was the home of Regenerative Design Institute. It was called the Commonweal Garden in Bellinas. And then um, now it's the home of a Natura Institute for Ecology and Medicine. And there's a doctor living there. And so the legacy is continuing, but yeah, and it was beautiful. I mean, we had all the things within the limitations of codes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's great. It takes us to something I want to explore with you also, which is you're talking about how a client who's new to the stuff isn't on the same page. They're like, food for us, screw that. I'll just take the grapes or whatever. Um, yeah. and, and one thing I've found over time is my focus has moved, it's slowly moved away from having in the foreground, the actual property and the actual design and build, um, that goes more into the background. It's still important, but what comes into the foreground is these humans and where they're at and how can I work with them in a way such that when I leave in a year or two or whatever it is, their capacity to see and work with complexity and, and get to that cutting edge in their own way is, is there, is that, is that something yeah, I mean, one of the things, yeah, what, well, I finally, this was my, the big breakthrough because, you know, after I learned permaculture and I had this landscape business, it was called Unsustainable Living Designs. I was straddling two worlds, you know, for a while. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I just decided both feed in the permaculture. Like if it's not permaculture, I'm not. So I would interview the client. I got to a place where I could interview them as much as they were interviewing me. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't a, if it wasn't a match, it wasn't a match. They could go to brand X landscaper or whatever. But um, the other thing, oh, I know what I was going to say. The other thing is I highly encourage people to take a permaculture design training clients to do that. I said, it will save you so much money and it will really help you get, you know, the cutting edge plan that you want. 
And, and then you're part of the, you're, cause you know, really what brought me to permaculture was I was really tired of doing projects for people that really didn't want to have any relationship with their garden. They wanted to sit on their patio and drink tea and look at a beautiful thing. And they, and then some of these people were so rich and they, we would, you know, bring in these ginormous trees and ginormous bushes. So they don't have like that Insta garden, Insta landscape. And not, instead of like watching something grow from a baby or a teenager yeah, to, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, and I just, I got weary. I got very apathetic about my work. It was hard to go to work. Hmm. And that's what brought me to permaculture. Is that I, I want to have clients. I want to have a relationship with their garden. And that's, and so when you're, you know, to answer one of your earlier questions, that's one of the first things I look for is what is their relationship to, I mean, we're, you know, yeah. And are they are they interested in in going there? And I was I had the luxury of being able to do that after a while. Yeah, yeah, choose yeah, yeah. Likewise, it's so nice, isn't it? To say this this is yeah. not going to bring me joy, or and it's it's not the best yeah. match. Yeah, our values aren't aligned. So yeah, you know. yeah. Yeah. I, I um I had a flashback as you're talking because we did hundreds of suburban postage stamp jobs in Melbourne over the years, and we had a client once, and I'm pretty sure orange, an orange tree was on the list, the wish list during the first consultation um, and there were other things. And so they're really excited about growing food at home. And then we went mm -hmm. to look at the site and, and tucked around behind a shed. There was an orange tree with all these oranges falling on the ground. And so we gathered them up and we took mm -hmm. them inside. And they're like, oh my God, oranges. <laughs> That's amazing. Where, did, thank you. Where'd you bring those? And like, those are from your tree. Oh, you know, like, like they, they didn't, didn't even know the tree was They didn't there. know they already had an orange tree that was already falling fruit on the ground and they were telling us they wanted stuff like that. It's hilarious. Wow. Or, or, or well, other times where... lesson that it's in the wrong place. Yeah, it's like yeah totally. Five or something. <laughs> exactly. I, I that, that triggered another flashback. We were sitting similarly in someone's house and there was these mandarines with the sticker on that had come from the shop. And then through the window behind the thing with the stickers was a mandarin tree with mandarins on it. Exactly. You know, that's where that. people are starting from often, man. Yeah, I've, that is, that's actually been a joke. It's been, yes, that's not an uncommon pattern, mm. what you're talking about. Mm. Yeah. Which is where it is, right? And that's the starting point. But you've got you to identify that because you can't expect them to take too big of a leap from that starting right. point. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it's one right. thing when it's around the corner or some in some place and they don't know it's there. It's another one when it's right outside there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's right right in their face. Oh, really? I just seriously I just can't can't pick those. Wow. Um I'd be curious to ask you another difference I've been exploring is because you, when I started, you talk to the clients, and one of the things that they're really keen to give me is a wish list. We want this, we want this, we want a pond, we want a da, 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 food forest. Mm -hmm chicken tractor, whatever it is. And often it's just cool stuff they've seen in a book or whatever. Um, and so when I started, I, I thought my job was to take all these bits and pieces and, and stick them together, you know, to assemble them. And then over time I've moved, well, well, part of my job is still to integrate these different things into their space. I've moved from joining together elements to create a whole to working with the fact there's already a hole here and we're going to be transforming it. We're going to be moving it and bringing some things in, taking some things out, but it's a lot more than simply assembling elements you know that's right does that, right. Does that resonate with you or yeah yeah completely yeah there i like that idea of like well here's the there's the wholeness is within this and we're just yeah. making adjustments to it yeah 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 or and maybe adding something yeah adding something's taking some of the ways yeah making something's bigger smaller changing the all that stuff that's a good um, way of looking at it i think yeah 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 oh cool 
Um, two other things that come up are the, this is, it's really fun, by the way, to be able to talk with someone with so much experience, because we can just hone in on these, I think, really Catch interesting up. nuggets. Yeah, yeah, rather than just sort of hovering at the surface. Um, the beauty and function thing. So, you know, I know Molson was really very much emphasized functional design, function, function, function. Yeah, we don't care about aesthetics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for me, over time, I, I, I felt somehow that there was a false split there too. And I'm sure you've found too that when the design process is healthy and alive, the function and beauty spring forth, right? They're, they're not, they're not in different directions or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in fact, when I first got into permaculture and I was starting to put, like my first project, of course, was my own yard, you know? Mm. And uh, and I was talking, I was at a party and I was talking to some friends and, and uh, you know, and, and I was kind of in the kind of sustainability world, you know, sustainable architects and, you know, yeah. a guy wrote, my friend wrote uh, one of the uh, book on ecological design. Anyway, so mm-hmm. I'm at this party and they're introducing me to this guy and they're saying, oh, yeah, and she's going to put on a permaculture garden and yeah, yeah, yeah. And he looks at me and he says, and he says well, it better be beautiful <laughs> like that. And I'm like, why wouldn't it be beautiful? I mean come on, you know, yeah. and like, I, why did he do that? Like it was, he was intense about it. Mm. And then I started seeing what other people were doing, you know, <laughs> and it's like, there's all these sticks and mulch and things and stuff and, you know, yeah, awkward like angles, compost yeah. pile. First thing you see when you walk in is some, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, there was, there was no sense of aesthetics. And if you're trying to sell the world, on this idea of permaculture, it's gotta be beautiful. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Like who wants a junky yard with cardboard showing and, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. no, totally. And that, that, that was us too. When I started permaculture in our rentals, yeah, it was a mess, you know. The landlord had a conniption when they first, you know, did the inspection sort of thing. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and yet why, why, would, why, why wouldn't it? I, sometimes I say on courses and stuff, consider a tree and tell me is the tree functional or beautiful you know to try and get across the point that life doesn't discriminate or prioritize one over the other yeah i mean it was sad because one guy he was actually a really good permaculturist and he was renting this estate and he and and it looked like that you know with the sticks and stuff and mulched cardboard and and those tire pond things you know are ugly with plastic sticking out and it was awful but he was growing things that could not be theoretically could not be grown in that area. Like there was an amazing aspect, hmm. like to the horticultural aspect, even though it wasn't beautiful. But the landlord died, he had to move, and this crew came in and just raked everything up, yeah. <laughs> just erased yeah. it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. such a common story. Yeah, I've yeah. That, versions of that story. It's yeah, one way or another. And part of that's just the dynamics of. I mean, often the stories I've heard, the person didn't die. The just the relationship went sour because there wasn't clarity oh, about expectations and all that. I didn't expect sticks. <laughs> no, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, and also that one of the things that didn't, you know, we cover it in our courses in permaculture, but it doesn't often get covered. Is around the it, well, it's a budding, growing thing around social permaculture. And a lot of it has a, so, a you know social justice aspect to social permaculture, but there's also you know how to how to make things appealing. You know there there you know how and just be an appealing person, being a person who can listen, being someone who it can deal with people. You know, yeah. because yeah. Bill wasn't much of a people person. You know, and uh, and a lot of and often whoever's you know the way David Holmgren ex- explains it, he, David kind of helped 
developed the concept, but, and they worked on it together, but it was really David's, you know, vision at the beginning, but, but Bill developed the movement. Yes. And that's how David describes it, which I really like. And, Mm. and, but then once, you know, so as a movement builder, a lot of people take on the personality of the founder. So at the beginning, there was a lot of that sort of cowboy, antisocial kind of personality in permaculture. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard a lot of stories from Bill's early colleagues here in Australia. Yeah. (laughs) It's like an amazing genius that, um, yeah, not everyone found endearing all the time. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, he wasn't, yeah. And and I think the irony of that is the same reason people loved Bill they hated him for the same yeah. thing, yeah, you know, yeah. like he did, wasn't worried about offending people. Not at all. It's when not he the goes PDC. back to Texas and says there's too many cows, a lot of people are applauding him. But then when he's making fun of the hippies or somebody else, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He moves around the room. He actually sit in intention during our PDC to insult everybody in the class. Yeah, he's an equal opportunity insulter. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a, what a, what a character. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to, um, another aspect of design I found fascinating is, is initially I was focused more on the stuff, you know, where's the tree going, the pond, et cetera. And then it came up when you're talking about access before, I started to realize how important the shape of that, the space between the things is, you know, like the negative yeah. space or whatever you call it. And, and just mm-hmm. how the shape of that really informs how the space feels and flows. And so I, I do exercises sometimes or even like, change the color or whatever to, to bring that into the foreground and say, how do we give that a nice shape? Or if we're planting large scale tree systems, rather than focusing on the shape of the tree system, how do we use that to create the, a, a lovely shapes paddock in between the two or, you know, that kind of thing. Well, what I, that what brings forward for me, like particularly like in, you know, smaller projects, I start with the pathway systems mm. And I use the tree branching, like the dendritic pattern of tree branching a lot for my paths. And the, and the, br- the trunk of the tree will either be the door of the house or the gate when you enter the garden. But I use that and that the pathways are what shapes the beds mm-hmm. and shapes the garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that brings up um, uh, zoning. We haven't talked about zones and, uh, and sectors, but how like how what's your relationship to the concept of zoning zone one through five is that is that kind of on the side or central or what do you make of all that well the main thing that i like when i teach i have to drill this home is that it is not in concentric circles (laughs) (laughs) somebody can have a zone five you can have a forest coming down behind your house you can have a zone five outside your back door you know, with hiking trails, for example, mm-hmm. or, and then they also, in the diagrams, they always have, I don't, they, the way I learned it, maybe from Bill, I don't remember, but it was like the penetrating wildlife corridor. And it has this thing yeah. going right into the door of the house. <laughs> I imagine you opening up the door and all this wildlife just like coming at you. And these diagrams <laughs> right. are silly. So, so we often try to redo the diagrams so that to show more, you know, options and, and also making it really clear to people that some people might only have one or two zones, mm-hmm. you know, and then it gets confusing because the creativity in the Southwest years ago, this must have been in the 90s, they decided zone, zone zero was the, was us, yeah. you know, yeah. and then 
that gets confusing because the other way is zone zero is the house inside the house and then now zone zero and then it becomes zone zero zero that's right i've seen <laughs> that yeah to zeros. try to keep it more consistent but it yeah. just started getting kind of confusing and and it's just a way of thinking about things and and i and i think it's important to stay out of the dogma mm. of yeah. it you know uh People get really, especially in design projects for the permaculture design trainings, they get really caught up in it. And it's just like, it's not, it's just a, it's a framework of thinking of time. I call it time motion study, but just how often are you going to the different places and how much are you interacting with them? And like that orange tree in your example, like it was some probably behind the garage or some place that they never went. And, uh, you know, whoever planted it there probably made a bad decision to plant an orange tree in a place where nobody ever goes, mm-hmm. you know. Or maybe it was the person who built the garage. Yeah, or <laughs> or maybe the garage, the tree was there. For, but, the, the, but then the other side of it, then that could become more of a zone two for the people. Like they, yeah. it could expand their relationship with their yard. So they start yes. going there more frequently because the tree is there. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very amorphic, uh lens to look at things through yeah yeah it's really nice to hear yeah that's that's kind of arrived at the same place it's more of an attitude and it can actually become a hindrance because you impose it so dogmatically underneath it for me is nearest oftenest right or oftenest nearest that's that's the idea and this is just one way of kind of Rock, yeah. Well, and also like you can that. look at in the urban area, like I've never actually been to Manhattan, New York. I've always wanted to go. It's on my bucket list. But, uh-huh. you know, just the idea that you walk outside your door and you've got the coffee house that you might go to a couple times a day or once a day. And, you know, you've got your all your little shops and the different things like there's a zone in zonation pattern in that. I think zonation could be really utilized in land use, developing land use policy like yeah. I, you know, think about the woman who, you know, say a mom and she's got to drive over here to do the laundry maybe. And then she's got to go over there to do the school. And then she's got to drive over here to go to the grocery store and over there to the post office. I mean, you know, that there's a lot of fuel wasted in those types of situations yeah. just yeah. because of zoning. And, and I don't, and I actually mean it in the permaculture aspect of zoning, not the, you know, zoning. Yeah. The council, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. This is quite fun. I'm just, every time we talk about something, something else pops up for me. And I'm interested particularly because you were so close with Bill and you learned directly from Bill for so long, work with Bill. I've just been, in a, in a sense, rediscovering Bill's um, emphasis of the core pattern, what he called the core oh, the pattern. the general core model, huh Yeah, yeah, and the idea that all living things kind of germinate at the interface between two media and then, you know, do that. And I'm just, I'm just sort of going back and appreciating how deep that is, really, you know, that it's it's a... Is that, is that something that's that you've yeah i mean i kind of stopped teaching that in my courses because i do a different pattern stick in my courses because that is so abstract it's like it's very abstract that whole thing but it does it's and it says so much mm. i mean it's really uh complex that that just that one you know graphic yeah um like the orders you know all that stuff um but uh, yeah, he was an incredible pattern thinker and, and that's how he was. And he never really got bogged down in detail. And when you wanted to get him bogged down in detail, you'd probably get a little annoyed, you know, because it's, there's a, you know, one principle we never, that we think should be there that, we, you know, it's called the it depends principle. 
you know, and he was a big, it depends because it is very uh, site specific. Like he says, you know, no two permaculture projects are ever going to look alike, mm -hmm. but he, his vision is a pattern. And I'm a bit of a pattern thinker too, but the idea David puts together, but working from patterns to details, um, that, that is a pattern that he put together, I guess it came from him. Uh, where it just says so many different things. And if you look at it from the top and, mm. and interestingly, I got to teach a permaculture course in Hawaii at the, at a place, uh, the owners was a guy named Nassim Haramind. Some of the people in the listening to this may know him. He developed uh, the unified field theory, but he, he kind of has this idea that the shape of the universe is that shape. Okay. It's not like a big bubble. It's actually sort of mm. a, uh, what do you call it? like a, a torus mm. that's imploding on itself, you know, like constantly curling in on itself. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. So that's when the people say, you know, the universe is expanding. No, it's contracting. No, it's expanding. It's, it's, it, if it's, that's true, it's doing both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, interesting. Sort of interesting. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying going back and appreciating some, some of those brilliance on that stuff. Yeah. Hey, at the we're heading towards a wrap up, but earlier, earlier on, you talked about how you've worked with a lot of different cultures and I got the impression you've worked with a lot of different indigenous um, cultures mm -hmm. in, in that mix. And you talked about how much, how, how reciprocal the learning was. What, what comes yes. to mind in terms of some of the things you've learned in those contexts? Oh, goodness. I don't know where to start. Wow. Well, um, first of all, I realize how many of our techniques and um, uh, methods and strategies are come from indigenous traditional ecological knowledge from indigenous people. And I feel it's important to acknowledge that. And I am acknowledging that a lot now. And there's a whole, I don't know if you've heard, you know, this whole decolonizing permaculture thing. Well, permaculture, especially coming from Bill's perspective was a, a, a response to colonization, you know? And he traveled the world and he learned all these things from, from indigenous people and from tribal peoples and stuff. And, um, and so I really realized how much of that that I've adopted come from indigenous people, A. And B, nobody has a monopoly on being, I mean, we all have all been colonized, including a lot of indigenous communities. And, you know, so one story that comes to mind was um, I was in Peru and I spent, I actually got sequestered there during the pandemic for 10 months. I couldn't leave. And I worked a lot with the Quechua farmers and there's, a, there, there's so much, so many stories there, but they know there's not a, there's not a tradition of organic agriculture there because they've been colonized for so long. So when I went there uh, and we make a point of having indigenous people in the course, we give scholarships, you know, if they're interested and they were, um, I, you know, I said, you know, I come here, you know, as a guest and I see a climate to die for. Like I've never been in a, had a garden where I'm planting avocados and blueberries in the same garden. You know, it's the climate in the sacred Valley of Peru is incredible. And then two hours away, you got your mangoes and bananas and coconuts and whatnot. And you've got your apples and alpaca and you've got everything, you know, like right within this, you know, because of the elevation. And I said, and you've got water just pouring out of the mountains everywhere. And you've got this glacial tilt soil, this incredible soil. And you're the home of the superfood, you know, all these superfoods mm. and all the Andean tubers and maca and, you know, all these things. 
and but I'm hearing the stories I'm hearing are about poverty and malnutrition. Like, what's up with mm. that? You know? And then we go on with the course, and at the end of the course, um, all the Quechua people were in one particular design group and they stood up and after they did their presentation, their design project presentation, he, the, the one man, he says, you know, Penny, he said, I really want to thank you. He said, we have been colonized for so long. We forgot how rich we are, you know, and, and they are, you know, they're so rich. And, but so many things have been forgotten or lost um, temporarily, hopefully. And what's good now is that people are starting to reclaim their traditional ways more. And um, so that's one thing. And then uh, we, I had a school, we had a regenerative design and nature awareness program. And in that program, we had indigenous elders coming to teach us how to conduct ourselves and how to, you know, and they basically shared stories about how their traditional, how they, their traditions are and how, they live just in, in a society, in a culture, like honoring your elders, you know, mm-hmm. um, really being in relation with the land. Like we are all relatives, like, you know, uh, you know, we're all related to all of creation is related to each other. And so uh, what one man, Oren Lyons said, is he said, what you call resources, we call relatives. And that was something that mm-hmm. really hit home for me. Um, and just the beauty of being able to have that level of connection and, and, and almost being able to have permission to have that level of connection, you know, as a white person um, was nice. And, um, and, and I realized that the way we're teaching really has value, you know, because at first people would be like, what, what's she going to come and teach us about our plants? You know, who's this? Who is this chick, you know? Who is this person? But then, you know, third day into it, they're going, oh my God, this is amazing. I don't want to miss a minute of this. You know, like I, you know, they love it. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's been good. And but it has to be done properly and with in in the right respect and not, you know, arrogant and not know-y-all-y, know-it-all, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and be humble yeah. and and be in the question a lot, you know, like I teach a lot with questions. Uh, instead of just like, this is how it is, because you know? <laughs> it isn't, <laughs> it's not, you know, there's, and, and trying to be uh, non-dogmatic about things. Is, that's what I loved about permaculture the most is it's a non-dogmatic practice because you're working with principles and, mm-hmm. you know, individual situations, you yeah. know, there's not yeah. a one stop, one size fits all solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you'll grant me one last question to bring it home, that'd be amazing, which would be, I had, I had to pick from two here. The, the one that came to the top was like zooming right out now to permaculture as a whole at this, at this time and this place in human history and everything. What would your, it's not advice, but what's your sense of where permaculture wants to be focusing attention or what, what's important for permaculture to be on top of? Well, right I'm doing an online course. I'll just make a shameless plug with Ecoversity ecoversity.org we're actually starting our first class tomorrow and so today is the last day of enrollment for this class but we'll do we do them twice a year it's a six-month course live and uh we're calling the global redesign (laughs) the global redesign because like the last class we had people 200 people from 37 different countries in the class and yeah and 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 we need we need it we need a global redesign. I mean, we really need to redesign. Everything is so broken. And as a permaculturist, and I'm sure you feel this way too, where you see the solutions, you can actually see the nav- how we could navigate our way out. 
We know how to do it. We know how to clean water. We know how to build soil. We know how to stop the destruction of the planet. But do we have the political will or the education to be able to do this? Or they, the, even the knowing the possibilities of what's available to us as a, as a, as a, as a species or as a culture or as a community, uh, choose your scale. <laughs> you know, do, do we have the political will to do it? And, and, and that's where it gets hard for people like us who are sitting on all this stuff and nobody, you know, I'm not seeing the federal government of the United States coming to my door and asking me, you know, and if they did, boy, would they get an earful? But not just me, but just asking anybody who's sitting on what we're sitting on as permaculturists. And the other thing that I'm finding is that anybody who commits their life to doing this work as permaculturists, especially now, they have job security for the rest of their life. And they found out since the pandemic, there's been like this huge, I don't remember, like 4,000% increase in people Googling uh, permaculture and the interest is growing and it's only going to get more. Mm -hmm. You know, we're only going to be more in demand as the time goes on. So my advice is train up, get yourself trained up, get ready because it's coming and we're in it now. You know, it's not the future. The future is here. And uh and we're living, you know, we're, we're surfing that wave of climate change and global weirding and, and species extinction. And, and, and also, I want to give a big plug. Teenagers really need this information, the young ones. Um, there's a lot of curriculum for elementary school, but there's not a lot for teenagers. And that's when they're forming who they're going to be as an adult. And when they get environmental education, they're getting, yeah, global collapse, you know, climate change, ocean, you know, collapse, all these things with no solutions on what to do. So you wonder why are young people so depressed? You know, a lot of it's what they're getting in school and what their education is, because what permaculture brings is a lot of hope and, and vision. And, and it's, I think it's critical now. I mean, I feel lucky and you probably same thing. You know, we were smart enough to get in on this, you know, so we, we've gotten to live this life of, of, solution-oriented um, design but you know a lot of people don't know this stuff yet and so I see a lot of ignorance when I watch the news <laughs> and so yeah I don't know if that answered your question that was beautiful thank you yeah. so much Penny it's been a real pleasure yeah it was really fun talking to you mm -hmm.